Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone Season 2, Episode 16, Hungry Like the Wolf, where we will be looking at chapters 27 through 29 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of The Thrill of the Hunt. Thank you for getting that stuck in my head. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Sure. Hey, if I have to suffer, you do too. (laughs) How does that make sense? You're the one who got it stuck in your own damn head. I haven't listened to it in years, so whose fault is that? Yours. Well, here's hoping that your little do 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 wasn't enough to get us flagged for copyright. Fingers crossed. Hope yours wasn't. Oh, I doubt mine was. And mine would be? Are you saying that mine has that much fidelity? I'm saying that you at least did it at the right tempo. (laughs) Well, thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. Anyway, (laughs) today's episode brought to you by ADHD. (laughs) Yeah. And, oh, damn it. Damn it, damn it. It locked fix for me thank you you're welcome one of these days i'm just gonna cut your thumb off and use it to why do you look so upset i don't want you to cut my thumb off but it would make getting into your ipad so much easier for you yes it would make it a lot more difficult for me what do you think you'd misplace your thumb possibly yes (laughs) i know me (laughs) Have you seen the things that I've managed to lose? Well, no, you haven't because I've lost them, but. (laughs) Today's episode really is being brought to you by ADHD. (laughs) I'm asking seriously, have you seen them? I've lost them. (laughs) I don't know. They're probably next to all the crap I've lost. (laughs) Oh, we're boned. (laughs) And not in the good way. Alrighty. As usual, short explanation of the pod. Not so short, but maybe fast. Each week we'll be examining a section of the wise man's fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. We will also take time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian for Nemos of the Week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact and we will share a recommended thing of the week. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Da Books. Secondly, our discussions naturally assume that you have either A, read the entirety of the Kingkiller Chronicle and any other thing that Patrick Rothfuss has ever written, or you really just don't care about spoilers, but you love us. You love us. You really, really love us. Needless to say, beyond this point, here be spoilers and the cats trying to destroy our carpet. Stop it. A word to our community. Please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds we love exploring. We have conveniently forgotten that I actually owe everybody raspberries. We'll make it happen. Yeah, but then we would have to get out of your own routines and, you know, buy us a Krispy Kreme donut. Yeah, I will have to do that. Eventually. Eventually. Or I could do sesame. As in open? As in sesame donuts, the little local shop down the street from us. But you promised me Krispy Kreme. What am I going to do if I don't have all of those thousands upon thousands of weird chemicals that are stuffed into a donut? I don't know. What are you going to do? I don't know. But if anyone is interested in seeing what type of thousands upon thousands of weird chemicals get shoved into a donut specifically at Krispy Kreme they can watch Food Insider and Food Wars but all that being said as we go off the rails yet again speaking of punishments it's time for 45 second recap you got your timer up I do I actually do and a warning that I have no battery on my phone alrighty 
Cherry's in my future. Nope. Cherry's in your future? Nope. Death to cherries. Nope. Yes. Nope. Wow, editing me is going to just... <laughs> You're just as bad as me on this one. <laughs> I know. I'm off the rails. So are you. I don't know that there ever were any. In three... Damn it, my phone locked up. <laughs> you okay? Sure. In three, two, one, go. Quoth delivers bad news about Kilvin's forbiddance. Though their fear of Davy was untrue, they can still wish Ambrose good riddance. With Fellow's assistance, the boys search the archives. Nine days worth of pittance, though first Quoth must survive. Fellow strikes gold, but it's in a dad language. And Simon is quite bold and recites some poetry quite languid. Fellas sees Sim with fresh eyes anew and appreciates his limn as young lovers are wont to. With a schema in tow, Quoth works on his gram in spare time, while also a spare project he grows, because that sort of rhymes. One day Quoth returns to his room and, all tired from his toil, to find his loot gone to its doom and his pants he doth soil. <laughs> 34.41 seconds, but my goodness. <laughs> Behind the scenes knowledge. <laughs> I've heard Will <laughs> practice this. <laughs> and I told him to enough. <laughs> oh dear. You got what you asked for. <laughs> Let's get into it. At least this is a funny episode and not something dreary, dark, or, you know, sad or anything of that nature. It's just... Whew. All right. So let's start things off with chapter 27, which is titled Pressure. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, man, there's another copyright strike for us. Yeah, please stop. <laughs> Although, if you add a noise... It's no longer under pressure. Oh, the vanilla ice defense. <laughs> Let's go on. So we start things off with Quoth, Will, and Sim meeting up and fueling up at Anchors. And, I mean, I gotta say, Quoth's spread there sounds pretty good. So yeah, he brings them some mugs of beer and a tray with fresh bread and butter, cheese and fruit, and some bowls of hot soup thick with beef and turnip. That just sounds perfect for a blustery autumn day, doesn't it? It does, except I'm not sure when the last time I ate a turnip was. Oh, it's a good winter veggie. You know, the, the thick turnip stew with beef and... Oh, yeah. Are you asking me to make that? No. Just saying it's good for a blustery day. It's not blustery right now, but... It's nourishing soul food. Sorry. What's up? I just tweeted, because... <laughs> off rails. Well, for once, it's not all my fault, so... <laughs> nope. I'm just curious what you tweeted now. <laughs> yep. Quoth does the thing that a lot of people do, and comes up and says, So, I have good news, and I have bad news. What you want first? Naturally, Will, ever the pessimist, says, give me the bad news first. Nope, that would be Simmon. Simmon says that? Oh, Simmon I... says that. Oh. I thought it was Will for some reason. It's highlighted <laughs> in my book. I, I believe you. I just The only other possible explanation would be if they are different between the editions of the book, one on the Kindle and one on, you know, paper. Wouldn't be the first that's happened. I know, actually, some of the chapter names are different. It's really weird. But in this case, you are correct and I am wrong. I was simply misremembering. Wait, 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 wait. You were... Wrong. It's that simple, everybody. Just admit. Never mind. I am really in a weird mood. Sorry, guys. We're both all over the rails here. We'll get as far as we can. Yep. So, Sim... 
I think because he's in a bit of a bad mood, wants the bad news first. I don't know. Almost everybody I've ever talked to says bad news first so that good news can be the thing that's left in your mouth. What? No. The taste that's left in your mouth? It's what you finish on? I don't know. Phrasing? There's also the old shirt sandwich thing where you have a shirt sandwich on two slices of perfect bread. So the bad news is that Kilvin won't give Quoth plans for the gram. So Quoth even explains it's because Kilvin thinks it is too dangerous to let a Rolar play around with the runes for blood and bone. And Sim looks up and goes, did he say why? And I'm like, he did. He did say why. It is too dangerous for a Rolar to play around with the runes for blood and bone. That is why. Not only that, you could probably make something really nasty if you put your mind to it. Quoth doesn't even need to put his mind to it. He just thinks of something that would be super awful. Little amulet, a little bit of blood, rune, whatever. All of a sudden, you have a thing that you can use to burn someone alive. I mean, this is just DARPA shirt right here. And Sim just proves that he is so sweet and so gentle. And he's like, oh god, do you ever have any nice thoughts? And... Like, it never occurred to him. Like, it never even occurred to him. You ever have those friends that you never hear swear? Yeah, I kind of get the feeling that Sim is that guy. Yeah. We also get the news that on sort of a both good news, bad news sort of scenario, bad news is Quoth confronted Davy. <laughs> to which Sim goes, are you stupid? Yes, yes he is. And he even says, yes, yes I am. But the good news is Davy's not the one behind the attacks. Bad news is she kind of hates me now. <laughs> Which is way worse. It, it's like avoiding stepping on something like a piece of paper only to just step into a big old pile of dog crap. A little bit, yeah. Good thing you didn't step on that paper. Uh-huh. <laughs> but now he has even more certainty that Ambrose is behind this. And his reasoning actually, for once, is pretty sound. Because at this point he's recognizing that one, he is not Ambrose's primary antagonist. Ambrose is just trying to flush out whoever it is that broke into his rooms. Quoth makes a really good point that if Ambrose thought it was Quoth, that he would just bring Quoth up on charges again. And he would be well within his rights to do so. Yes, that is the part that's being skipped over. Yep, Quoth is the one who committed larceny. Did he steal anything? Uh, it was burglary. Yeah. It doesn't make Ambrose any less of a bastard, but at least he doesn't have a clear understanding of who his target is. Yeah, at this point, it's just petty vengeance against whichever one of his myriad of enemies, whether perceived or real, actually broke into his room. And Ambrose strikes me as the person who makes a lot of enemies. Including Sim, who is a person that it is really hard to get on their bad side. But once you're on their bad side, he even says, I'd pay 10 talents if I got to hold the lash when contemplating whipping him. This is when Sim swears. <laughs> and everyone goes, the hell? Always watch out for the nice ones. Like the whole proverb that lends the book its title, there are three things a wise man fears, and one of those is the fury of a gentle man. And Sim is truly a gentle man. And we see here that, yeah, if he is at the point where he truly hates someone, you do not want to be that person. Yet Ambrose has no idea. Like I say, Ambrose has bigger fish to fry in his mind anyway. So, ultimately it comes down to Will and Quoth talking Sim into understanding that if they did prove to the Masters, who, to Sim's credit, he says, we should go talk to the Masters, and I'm like, you should have done that ages ago. But now, they're in a little bit of a pickle, and Will agrees that it is too high of a risk to Quoth 
to go to the masters and say, so I broke into Ambrose's rooms, but he's trying to kill me with a voodoo doll. This is why the wet bandits never tried to take Kevin McAllister to court. He was also like eight years old. Well, yeah, there's that, but... <laughs> that kid needed to go to therapy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Major abandonment issues. Not just that. Also raised by a TV, so... Not, not, no, not, not just that. Who in their right mind, I don't care if you're eight years old, burns people, makes them step on nails, rusty nails, hits people with, like, concrete-laden paint cans. Also, the wet bandits are like a marvel of modern, I don't know what, because... Holy sure. shit, they're not dead. But like I say, after all of that grievous bodily harm inflicted on them, if they were to try and bring Kevin McAllister up on charges, they'd have to admit that they were trying to break into his home. And they're not going to do that. I mean, that goes way past any semblance of a stand-your-ground defense. It does. And yet, I mean, really, I guess what we're trying to say is that Ambrose Jackis is Kevin McAllister. Which is more a damning indictment of Kevin McAllister than a defense of Ambrose Jackis. I thought you didn't like that movie. I don't. Like I say, the mere fact that a character as loathsome as Ambrose Jackis easily fits into the role of Kevin McAllister means that Home Alone was trash. Hot takes, everyone. Anyway, continue down the page. And the thing that I have highlighted is both getting it into his head that he needs a bear trap, but not explaining why he needs a bear trap. But they are talking about Ambrose. Are we sure that Ambrose is Kevin McAllister at this point? It can be both people. Of course, we don't know exactly what the bear trap is for just yet. It's probably for that second part of the magic trick that is Quoth's secret invention. The arrow catch, yes. I agree with you, but like reading this just straight on, you're like, why do you need a bear trap? Why do you need a crossbow? True. Future knowledge us knows the answers. So at that point, they'd resolve that the best thing they can do is monitor Ambrose's comings and goings to see if it coincides with when Quoth gets attacked. And then Sim is like, okay, good news, good news. Now, 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 now. And this is actually legit good news because fellas actually decided to join them on the hunt. Let's face it, these guys need someone who knows what she's doing. That's true, but the way that he presents it is, if you two care to join us, Fella and Quoth, it will mean long, grueling hours in close contact with the most beautiful woman this side of the Almethi River. How to get two horny teenagers to do a research project? Put them in a room with a girl. You know that she's doing a disproportionate amount of the work, too, just to make sure that she gets a decent grade. Crap. That was my senior project, which was like, if you don't do this well, you don't graduate. And it's a group project. And I'm like, that's the dumbest decision that our teachers ever made in their entire lives. Thanks. Yeah. Thus began our search of the archives. So it starts out fun and games. Everyone's having a good time. Then it gets a little dull after maybe a couple hours. I mean, it's kind of like any mobile game. Yeah, that Fatui first-time user experience is always fun until you get to the grind. You hit that phase where it's either grind or pay money. Or both. I think the mark of a good mobile game is how long can I go without paying for it. Indeed. And then whether or not after I hit that point if I want to give the developers any money because as a person who has made mobile games for a studio we do appreciate it when people pay for the experience it's very true but I was always on the user experience side of everything advocating for us not to be decks meanwhile we also find out that apparently Starbucks has made its way to Imre because Quo's hooked on coffee Right, five hours of sleep at night, injured, trying to keep up his ironclad alar. He's putting in a lot of effort, and he needs some stimulants. 
I mean, he even lost his first duel against two people. Can't win them all, buddy. Let someone else win for a change? It's not the end of the world. Everybody else has been losing. <laughs> That's true. They're fine. You are too. They also do manage to partake in their surveillance of Ambrose. And, yep, turns out that every time Quoth gets attacked, it coincides with when Ambrose is in his room. Which tells them, one, it's probably Ambrose, and two, whatever he's doing, he's doing it from his room. Either that or he has a bit of a problem. He's a shy pooper. That wasn't the problem that I was thinking of, but I digress. Let's go on. Moving on to chapter 28, it begins with Quoth getting attacked eight times in a single day. So once when he's waking up in Willem's room, twice during lunch, twice while studying physiognomy in the Medica, three times in quick succession while coldsmithing iron in the fishery, followed by a day with absolutely nothing. Which is terrifying. Yeah, that just has to be one of those where you know that at any moment something can happen and any time it doesn't happen is just grating. He knows that at any point he could get attacked. It could be fatal for him if he lets his guard slip at the wrong time. Or he could be jabbed in a um, more private area. If he's not careful, that could itself be pretty fatal. It could be fatal or it could just be, you know... Embarrassing. Or sterilizing. Meanwhile, finally on their ninth day of searching, Fella hits Paydirt. She discovers this folio that they'd seen referenced as part of the Scrivani, which is this great big encyclopedic text of all things alchemical and sympathetic and what have you. Historically, this was a missing volume that had already been taken into private stocks, but Fella's found a copy. Unfortunately, it's in Eldventic. However, Simon, our little poet, knows how to read a smidgen of Elvintic. And he actually knows how to understand it pretty well. He's able to quickly, just off the cuff, put together an Elvintic poem about the day's events. I'm going to point out that he does it in a Turin in the style of Elvintic. But I do love this moment where he just kind of off the cuff goes, Sought we the Scrivani, word work of Surther. Long lost in ledger, all hope forgotten. Yet fast found for friendship, fair the book bringer. Hot comes the huntress fella, flushed with finding. Breathless her breast, her high blood rising, to ripen the red cheek, rouge bloom of beauty. And he just kind of does this off the cuff without really seeming to think about it too much. It's kind of a sleeping mind sort of thing, which I think is partly what catches fella's eye there too. What I really do like is that Kvothe is just like, I've never cared for poetry. And Sim, instead of defending his love of it or getting upset or calling him a Philistine or whatever, just goes, you're loss. And that is exactly how you should handle things like that. Don't be a gatekeeper. Let people like what they like. I am a massive dork and a massive geek and a massive nerd. I like what I like. Let me like what I like, damn it. And people are also entitled to dislike what they dislike. Also true. Like football. Look, I know you don't like watching soccer with me. No, 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 I meant American football. Oh, right, yeah, well, that goes without saying. So this is also when Fella really starts to recognize Sim as someone more than just a guy she knows. Or a piece of furniture in the room. And she actually starts to appreciate him. I mean... Here he is, he just composes this fairly flattering poem just off the cuff about her and doesn't even seem to think about it like it's anything. It's also the first time I think we've seen Simon truly compliment a woman without just feeling like he's trying too hard. I think there's a little bit of that. I think it's funny the way that the imagery is just like, and her head turns and she's like, wait, what? It's when she recognizes that there's something there, and this is also Sim just being himself. He's definitely a romantic, but here he's not trying, he's just doing. What I really love is this little passage. Let me say this. It was worth the whole awful, irritating time spent searching the archives 
just to watch that moment happen. It was worth blood and the fear of death to see her fall in love with him. Just a little. Just the first faint breath of love. So light she probably didn't notice it herself. It wasn't dramatic, like some bolt of lightning with a crack of thunder following. It was more like when flint strikes steel and the spark fades almost too fast for you to see. But still, you know it's there, down where you can't see it, kindling. Which is the name of the chapter. That's the kind of stuff I'm here for with this book. There was a question posed on Twitter about what books have you read the most, like reread the most. And for me, it's this one. Granted, the first four times that I've experienced this book, it was on audiobook. So some people are going to say that I didn't read it and that this is the first time I've read it. But this is the fifth time I'm experiencing this book. And it's things like that. It's Patrick Rothfuss's writing is peppered with things like that. And it makes me want to come back to reread it. It's also a moment of just pure, gentle joy and friendship. There's something to be said about watching two mutual friends fall for each other. And I love seeing that sort of thing happen when it's like two people I love love each other. It makes me all the happier. It's that sense of compersion, you know? I'm someone who loves love. I am here for people being good to each other and seeing the best in one another and bringing out the best in one another. You know, I'm always going to be here for that sort of thing. And so to see Kvothe celebrating this for his two friends, there's something there that's pure and good. And in a story that has a lot of darkness, you need some of this light to make all of the darkness worth it. It's what keeps you sticking around. That and the mysteries. Speaking of mysteries, we get another reference to Puppet. And Quoth has yet to meet Puppet. And all we've gotten as readers are just offhanded mentions of Puppet. We don't know who Puppet is. Other than he seems to have a very good working knowledge of the archives. And all the scribes know him. We'll find out more. <laughs> when we meet Puppet. Later. Not today. So then Quoth and Sim spend two days deciphering the diagrams, or more accurately, one day deciphering, and then another day double and triple checking their work. Yeah, because I think the whole, this is too dangerous for a Rolar, maybe got through to Quoth, who was like, well, so like the idea behind it isn't that bad. It's fine, whatever. It doesn't matter. Anyone should be able to know that this exists especially me, but holy crap, I don't want to disfigure myself or kill myself or, you know, boil my blood inside my body. I, that might not be a great thing to happen. I should triple check my work. It's like what happens when you have four hours blocked out for an exam and you complete it in 15 minutes. And then you're just like, well, I should probably take another 15, 20 30, oh, maybe another hour or two, just going back through it and making sure I answered everything correctly. Yeah, but at a certain point, you're just going to psych yourself out. Yes, yes, that's the trickiest part. I've done this. That doesn't seem right. I should cross out my entire answer and retry this. No, no, sometimes your gut feeling, the first thing that you think of, is right. It's very hard to get used to that. If you've done your studying, yeah, you can trust your gut. So meanwhile, Kvothe's work on the gram, though, has to be done in fits and starts. He can't do it when Ambrose is in his room because he can't trust that he can do so safely. What with the potential for a random attack at any given time? Voodoo doll. Ding, 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 ding. Ding, 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 ding. Do, 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 Dude, copyright! <laughs> Anyway, lucky for Quoth, he also has this mysterious thing that he sort of kind of is working on because Kilvin said, please stop working on deck lamps. So he has a private room where he can work on the thing that he is definitely not supposed to know how to make and pretends to work on this other thing. 
I don't think he's pretending to work on the other thing. He's actually doing that in the spare time. Fair enough. He's working on both things at once. But it makes for a good cover. And meanwhile, he's also started establishing himself as a regular at the Golden Pony. Which, I keep wondering, how does he find the money to actually, you know, order stuff there? Since we know that it's expensive. Maybe that's where Starbucks is located. <laughs> it could be. That being said, he might also be loitering. That's entirely possible. He goes in and orders a water and then just sits in the corner, nursing it, leeching off the Wi-Fi. Where's your bathroom? Oh, wait, I have to buy something to use the bathroom? I will buy a single drip coffee, which I will then nurse for four hours. <laughs> Where's the bathroom? And I'm going to set up my laptop here, and I'm going to be working on my screenplay. Right, because Ambrose is not going to go and say, the hell are you doing here? <laughs> like, that's not going to cause any suspicion, any weirdness, unless he's just sitting there while Ambrose is in his own room and leaving before he can come back, which is kind of a weird... Is he just sitting in the Golden Pony waiting for Ambrose to, like, poke him? Yeah, this strikes me as an unusual bit of misdirection. It'll probably bear fruit, but it seems like we're missing some details about why and how he's doing this in a way that isn't drawing attention from Ambrose or Ambrose's contacts. Right. What's the weird redheaded kid doing in your bar? And we also know that Ambrose is probably the sort of person who would pay someone in the bar to inform him if anyone unusual shows up. Or if routines change. Hey, there's a weird red-headed kid who's wearing threadbare clothing who's just hanging out a lot. Just heads up. He asked to use our bathroom. Right. <laughs> I think he's a screenwriter. <laughs> <laughs> and then we come to a very quick chapter, chapter 29. And pretty much all that happens is Quoth returns to Anchors one night to discover his loot has been stolen. And so he does the thing that I think makes a lot of sense. He checks under his bed. He checks behind the door. He checks wherever he can in the broom closet sized room that he inhabits at Anchors. And then he runs downstairs and he's like, where's my loot? Can you check everywhere down here? Please, please, please. Did I leave my loot here? I know you're saying that I didn't. I know you're saying that you remember me not leaving it here. I know that you remember me specifically taking it home into my little tiny broom closet of a room. Check anyway. I mean, I can understand how he's feeling here. It's that sense of violation. Like his one safe place seems to have been violated and he really is doing everything he can to prove that it wasn't. I don't know that that's specifically the motivation for him thinking like, I need to find this, I need to find this, I need to find this. That is his one and only possession that is of any real value to him. And it's not because of money. It's like, remember when you lost your wallet and I knew that you'd walked all over downtown Issaquah. So I walked all over downtown Issaquah looking for it. And we asked at the restaurant that you were at, like we called them. I walked in and asked them. I walked in and asked them again. You had walked in and asked them. And it wasn't necessarily just because it was your wallet and we needed to do all the things that you do when a wallet goes missing, like, you know, cancel credit cards and try to remember if you had any money in it. It was a wallet I made you. It was made out of duct tape. And it was specifically for you. And the sentimental value mattered at least half as much as all of the, like, wallet contents. Well, and there's what was taken. And I think also that sense of betrayal that something that you love so much was stolen or might have been stolen. I can see how that would really hurt Quoth. Like, I remember when the day we got engaged, we had parked the car in a kind of hidden away spot that was semi-legal <laughs> and I also remember that while we were out and I was proposing to you and we were off having a grand time 
someone broke the window to the car and then stole your MP3 player. Okay, my Microsoft Zune HD. This is the thing I just have to point out that it wasn't even a great MP3 player. So I'm going to actually amend that. It was actually a pretty good MP3 player, but just not a popular model. Okay, fair enough. It was one that the night before, literally the night before, we had a conversation with a friend of ours who was like, you own a Zune. People get cases for their iPods to make them look like Zunes so they won't be stolen. And yet someone broke into my car to steal that while you were proposing to me. Yeah, it was a really gnarly capper to what had been up to that point a fantastic day. You were freaking out. I was freaking out. Our friends were freaking out. It was that sense of violation that I think is really what is partly driving this. Just someone has broken into Kvothe's room and stolen the one thing, his one possession that he cares about. And that's terrifying. Now, Future Knowledge Us understands that this was Denna, who, in reference to the title of our second ever episode, should have left a note. I think she actually did. Kvothe just didn't look at it. Right. She did leave a note in the window. And he never actually went in through the window, so he didn't notice it. You're absolutely right. Also, just for everybody's reference, we did actually find Will's wallet, and it was stuffed in between the seat cushion and the back of a booth at the restaurant that we checked out four times. Yeah, they called us a couple days later and said, oh, hey, we found your wallet. (laughs) Anyway, but yeah, you're right. There was a note. I don't know. I would have left the note in the same place that I found the loot. Yeah, I think Denna was being maybe a little too clever for her own good here. Or for Quoth's own good. Yeah, she overestimated Quoth's intelligence. No, no, I don't think it was his intelligence that he over- she overestimated. I think she underestimated Quoth's constant need to check where that one possession was. I have the same kind of like (gasps) panic reaction if I lose something. I keep a lot of things in my pockets, obviously wallet and keys and cell phone and stuff, but also fidget toys. And I don't like losing things. I really don't like losing things. It's a fidget toy. I could replace it, but I still don't want to lose it. And it feels awful. But I check it constantly also, partly because my jeans are girl jeans with girl pockets, which means very shallow, which means stuff falls out of them. But also just because it makes me feel better to know that they're there. And I think Denna, in being clever, assumed that Kvothe's standard exit route from his room is through his window. Therefore, I will leave a note in his window. Not thinking, what do panic people do? Not even thinking, oh, he might panic if this is missing. And honestly, like, it's the sweetest thing that she could have done for him, right? Like, it was going to fall out of that case. It was going to be busted. It was going to be probably lifted out of the case by somebody else if it was worth more than five talents which it is not because it is Kvothe and he has no money, but it is worth so much more to him. I'm going to be very clear. It's worth way more to him. But I don't think it occurred to her that his reaction would be that visceral. Yeah, it's the one thing that ties him back to his family. It's the thing that makes him Kvothe. And to have that taken is frightening. His reaction is completely understandable, is really what we're getting at. I empathize with him here, and just on multiple levels, feeling unsafe like that, especially when you're dealing with so many other threats. But yeah, he's just just all out of sorts with this, and who can blame him? And that is where we leave you, fine, fine listeners. So with that, it's time for you to share the Phronemos of the Week. I am going to go with Sim for the simple fact that his reaction when Kvothe is like, 
No, I never really cared for poetry. It was just like, eh, you're lost. You know, I have friends who remind me of the way that Sim is described. Where they look for the good in everybody. And they can see it. And also where it is really tough to get on their bad side. But once you're on their bad side, you ain't never coming back to their good side. And I think that it is fair and right for Sim to know his boundaries. I like that Sim is gentle and that he is kind. He is one of those people that sometimes gets viewed as part of the scenery, which I think is unfair to him. There is so much good and love in that boy. His kindness and understanding is why he is consistently putting up with all of Quoth's bullshit. And he is never going to give up on his loyalty to Quoth unless Quoth is personally evil, vindictive, or mean towards him. And even then, it will probably take a lot of that kind of behavior without any remorse for a long time before Sim would give up on him. He's not a gatekeeper. He's, I was going to say not vindictive, but once you get to that point where you've made Sim angry, made that gentle man angry, he is. He definitely is. It's also telling that what makes him angry is people picking on his friends more so than people picking on him. Like, as far as we know, Ambrose has never done anything directly to Sim, but he's done a lot to fork with Quoth. And that's what gets him truly angry, to see someone abusing his friend. The things that make him angry are not injury to himself, it's injury to the people he cares about. So, I think that's a very good pick. Thank you. So now it's my turn for interesting fact of the week. I'm going to start by asking you a question. Do you know what the answer is going to be? Yes. Yes, I do. Good, because this has to play by, like, lawyer rules. Never ask a question that you don't know the answer to. Exactly. So, what do you think is the youngest language, not including conlangs such as Klingon, Navi, or Esperanto? So you're talking, like, English or French. Obviously not either of those. Right, like an actual language. Not specifically made up by, like, one dude. Right. Things that were not just made up for the sake of a project or for a fictional universe or anything like that. So it wouldn't be for Lord of the Rings. Correct. That's a conlang. Okay. Just checking because that one is fully fledged yeah. everything. Same with Klingon. But So my answer is Forkifino. So it turns out that probably the youngest actually used language, naturally occurring, is Nicaraguan Sign Language. So basically life for deaf children in Nicaragua around the middle of the last century was pretty bad. They didn't have any community or any real shared formal language or anything like that. And they were typically kept at home with their families where they were forced to make do with what they could come up with. They might develop sorts of slapdash series of signs to interact with the immediate family, but they didn't have a way to communicate with people outside of that group. That changed in the late 70s and early 80s with the Sandinista Revolution. So whatever else you might say about the Sandinistas, they prioritized deaf education for children. And so they started busing deaf children into newly founded schools just for them. And it's these children who'd been denied language their entire lives who spontaneously created a shared organized language that they used with one another and with their surrounding communities as well. The sign language quickly went from a kind of pigeon or baby language into a fully fledged one that ended up spreading throughout Nicaragua and it turned into something that people both deaf and hearing were using to communicate with one another and it was completely separate from anything else that had come before. So it had its own grammar, its own particular gestures that it used for words. It's completely separate from either ASL or BSL. So I thought you might find that fascinating. Okay, so that is a perfect interesting fact for me. I love learning more about sign language and not just American sign language or British sign language. I follow some Instagram accounts that actually have gone into displaying the same 
words and sentences and phrases in sign language from the United States and Great Britain and Egypt and Japan and China. And it is fascinating to me to see what gestures and hand movements and different things are used for communication around the world. Even as simple as like counting, numbers, the alphabet, all of that. But also for anyone who isn't already watching it, and we will probably go into this as a recommended thing at some point, Only Murders in the Building on Hulu had an entire episode that was no dialogue spoken that we could hear. But the POV character in that episode is deaf and he uses sign language. And granted, because it seems like it's word for word the way that it would be in English grammar, it's probably not technically ASL because ASL has its own grammar that is different from English. So it's probably either PSE, which is pigeon signed English, or SEE, which is signed exact English. And the actor who portrays this character is deaf. And I loved watching that episode, even though my natural tendency is to not watch the television when things are going on on TV shows, because I usually am futzing around with my phone. That one I had to watch because otherwise I would have not gotten any of the episode. But being able to understand some of the signs that were being used was just really fun for me. And I definitely encourage more people to learn at least basic signs. But yeah, the idea that the kids made their own and that they found the right ways for them to communicate with one another and created their own grammar and recognized signs. It's just, that's really neat. And it happened within our lifetime. Yeah, I mean, the thing that really gets me, the thing that I took away from this is that languages that get properly used in the world are built by communities, not individuals. And it's those shared usages that actually give them meaning. There isn't one single author of the English language, for instance. It's a community of people who have nurtured and grown the language and altered the language as they've seen fit. And it's always interesting to see, you may look at someone as someone who coined something, but it's everyone else who's taken that thing up that actually turned it into something real. And it's a reminder to me, I think, that, again, it's, it's our communities that make these things meaningful. So yeah, that's my interesting fact. I appreciate the hell out of that. Thought you might. So that brings us to the thing of the week. It's your turn to recommend a thing to the rest of us. So a little over a week ago, I decided that I wanted to watch the show Sex Education on Netflix. I had heard some interesting and funny things about the show. And I was kind of wondering if it would remind me a little of this TV show that I saw like on MTV when I was a teenager that kind of went into dramatizing relationships, but mostly focused on accurate and real sex education information, which it does. I think I've explained this before, but uh, I am an asexual, panromantic, generally queer identifying person. Pronouns are she or they. Almost no one ever uses the they for me, but I would happily be accepting of it. I also don't really have a problem with she and her and all the female gendered-esque things because I sometimes identify as demigirl, but most of the time identify as agender. So with asexuality, there are a lot of other terms that kind of go around and get tossed around. Sex repulsed is one of them. I am not sex repulsed. I am, in fact, actually quite curious about the psychology of sexual attraction because I don't feel it. I feel romantic attraction. And to put it in the same terms that they kind of put it in the show, I'm panromantic, which is I am attracted to the person and not the gender. And ultimately, this show works and succeeds because of the relationships emotional relationships that are built 
between the characters. Yeah, there's a whole crap ton of sex in it. And if you are not interested in watching a whole bunch of horny teenagers going at it, even though the actors are most definitely not teenagers, they are some of them close to 30 years old. <laughs> and it's not like that's a huge secret or not obvious. But it goes into how we relate to one another when sex and relationships and romance are involved. Unrequited love, requited love, requited sexual tension. It is very LGBTQIA inclusive. I would like to see at least a trans character, but they have had non-binary characters. And I even spent the beginning of an episode going, you better be teaching people that using an ace bandage to bind is not okay. Please be opening up on this one character doing that so that you can then teach everyone about safe binding. And then they did. And there was even an episode about asexuality, or at least a part of an episode that had a character who was asexual and explaining how she is not broken because she doesn't want to have sex in this school that is full of people who just want each other. It takes place in an English private school, it seems, in a small little ruralish town. Maybe more like it's affluent, but it's also tucked away little village. I don't know. And it deals with not just topics about sex, but also topics about socioeconomic status. It doesn't shy away from gay relationships, bi relationships, the distinction between bi and pan and it's respectful. And everything is straightforward, non-judgmental, but there are definitely consequences for everything that happens in the show. The thing that I really loved is that there are no irredeemable characters. Some people, like the big bads or whatever that you would normally see in a show, like the season-wide, this person's a deck. Either that season or a season later, will be shown to have a completely different side to them, a more human side to them. People aren't caricatures in this. Yeah, I think one of the things that really hammers it home is that the people who cause the most harm are the people who need the most help. The people who are hurting the people around them, who are harming their communities, are the people who have unresolved issues that they need to work on. And those things are real. Those are things that they can do, though. And part of that is owning responsibility for the harm they do and then trying to make amends. The other thing that gets me is that the people who are able to help are not always perfect. They're able to help in one aspect while being completely messed up in another. So I know there's like that you can't really love someone unless you love yourself kind of a deal. This actually goes a little to the opposite. You can love people and show people kindness and joy and love without having all your shirt together. And it also shows that you can use the love that you're showing other people as a way to build that self-love up. Nobody is allowed to just live in stasis in this show. Everyone is growing and evolving. And it fits because all of these characters are teenagers. They're in a stage in their life where they are growing, they are changing, they are experimenting. And I think one of the most salient observations about the show is that that growth doesn't end the moment you hit 21. Also, that growth is not linear. Yeah, we have characters who sometimes backslide. You have characters who, even well into adulthood, make mistakes. You have characters who seem to have it together, who hurt the people around them, not because they're mean or evil, but because they've made a decision that doesn't fit with what everyone else around them needs. Ultimately, it's people growing and trying to take responsibility for their actions. I think it's a beautiful show, and it's also, it must be said, screamingly hilarious. Absolutely. It's not just drama. It is so funny, and it is funny in a way that I really appreciate. It is weird. It is unabashedly just 
off the walls sometimes, but it feels grounded and real at the same time. And the characters, I think, while maybe not realistic to teenagers, really, are so well written. And I think one of the things that really, really made me happy was in one of the episodes, they had a big point about letting people make their own choices and then they didn't undo that central premise of the whole show at the end when they very easily could have when two characters are faced with whether or not one of them would choose their educational future their next like 80 years worth of life the foundation that they want to build and the opportunities that they can have did not choose their partner over themselves. I thought they brought good closure to that scene. Both characters were able to honestly admit how they felt and were able to wish one another well without it turning into a sense of pity or anything like that. Or manipulation. Yeah, it was two people acknowledging that they had feelings for each other, but they weren't necessarily going to be able to be together, at least not physically. And at least not right then. If they really had those feelings, if they really have those desires, and if that's something that is theirs for the long term, they can wait because it will still be there later. It is an absolutely beautiful, charming, witty funny, life-affirming show. And, like, there's no real violence or hatred geared toward any of the people who present differently or wind up all of a sudden seeming all of a sudden to have gone from being a cishet white dude to being in a relationship with a man or a boy, because technically... The character is a teenager, but the guy that's playing him is almost 30. It's funny. Sorry. But there's no, there's a little bit of confrontation of like, you know, hey, are you a poof? And then, so what if I am? And it's like, no, no, that's fine. There's like self-loathing and there is fear of repercussion and fear of judgment, but there's not really any other character acting hateful towards them. I think part of it is that these are characters who are all in a state of growth. Even the characters who behave hurtfully are people who are in a growth phase as well. And so they're all in a state of flux. They are not who they're going to be for the rest of their lives. And this is a show that reminds us that who we are yesterday does not have to determine who we are today or who we're going to be tomorrow. One thing I also really, really love is that over the course of, and it's only like 24 episodes, not only do the characters have growth and the subjects and scenarios have more depth, but the show itself grows. It goes from being focused on essentially three people with some little outliers to a rather large cast of people that we really get to care about. You know, there's the delightfully weird girl that is obsessed with aliens and decks, but there's also people who have more mundane problems, like someone whose mom passed away and is now faced with their father having a baby with another woman. And where the breakdown of communication can affect a relationship. If everybody is dealing with their own thing and not working to lift themselves and their partner together, lift the burdens of both. It's a really good show. And while maybe there's more explicit sexual content than I would show to a preteen, you know, someone 16 and up, I would not hesitate maybe let them have access to it in their own private area instead of, you know, if you're a parent watching it with them going, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, I can't believe I'm watching this with a teenager. But I don't see anything wrong with letting people that you are 
hoping wouldn't be confronted with these kinds of relationships, but probably are, seeing something that models good conflict resolution and problem solving when it comes to interpersonal relationships. I think that it's not something to feel shameful over or to hide away. I think it should be out in the open and celebrated and respected. And that's the thing that the show does. Yeah, it's a lot of fun and it carries both of our seals of approval. It's just the right kind of humor for me. I hate cringy humor and I hate scatological humor and there's very little of that in the show. It's mostly, some of it's raunchy, not gonna lie, but it's mostly clever. It's also gentle because the joke is never at the expense of the characters. It is usually with the character's consent. So with that, I think it's time for us to come to our seven words. So you have the seven words from the book, and you were spoiled for choice this week. Oh my goodness, if you look at our Twitter from the day that we recorded, just the first two pages have four highlighted, but they're not my words. I was really contemplating using just the first faint breath of love, but I think what I'm going to do is say, first you have to promise me dinner. And that's because right afterward, so this is Stella playing coy and going, haha, I found the thing, Quoth, if you want it, you gotta like promise that you're gonna buy me dinner. And then Quoth just completely missing the hint. Like somebody chucked a ball at him and it just goes right past his head. And he's like, I'm gonna buy everyone dinner. And I'm just like, everyone's just face palming. That is pretty funny. But there's things about, do any of you read Elventic? And then the exchange between Quoth and Sim saying, I've never cared for poetry, your loss. And then, you know, things like, there's only one thing that makes sense. Or do you ever have any nice thoughts? But honestly, I just think that the first you have to promise me dinner is funny. And I can just see, like, there's a vision in my head of like a movie. And I don't remember what it is, but like where someone's trying to have a conversation and they toss something at the person and the person just completely misses it, doesn't even notice. I don't know what it is. If any of you do, let me know. So I had from life. And so this is an exhortation that I would like to give to all of our listeners who have a pet. And that is this. Look at that face. Give them scritches. little bit of behind the scenes on this one too. Will has been incredibly enamored with the fact that Sokka has finally seemed to settle down after three years of having him in our home. He is a cuddle bug, 20 pounds of cuddle bug, but he has become a lap kitty. Yep, a very heavy lap kitty. <laughs> and Will is in heaven. I do love it when he curls up on my lap. And Leela is not, because that used to be her spot. Yeah, Sokka will horn in on Leela oftentimes, where she'll be in my lap, content as can be, and then Sokka will just barge in, <laughs> just kind of, oh, making some space in here. But yes, I encourage you all to look at that face and give them scritches. Noted. And with that... I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 30 through 32 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of Balance Restored. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating the world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod. Where you can get access to our show notes, some custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, early access to upcoming pods, and other exciting items. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses to one more day above the roses. Ding!
Okay, this is a dumb conversation, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, we can just... <laughs> We're going to dump that. Yeah, that's fine. Huge dumps. Absolutely huge dumps. That won't be taken out of context. Never. 